the individual and the social. The Third Reich was intended to last for a thousand years. The fact that it failed to achieve that goal was the result of massive collective effort and sacrifice. Forces were unleashed, which even a few decades previously would have been beyond the powers of imagination. The capacity for human cruelty has doubtless remained relatively constant, but its exercise on an industrial scale has been a 20th century prerogative. When we talk of art being required to express or represent the modern condition, we do well to remember what is being asked of it. One direct consequence of the gathering of those forces, which precipitated a Second World War, was the destruction of the greater part of the avant-garde's social basis in Western Europe. Refugees from the dictatorship had made their way to Paris in the 1930s. Some had proceeded to London. Now, with the fall of Paris, for many radical artists and intellectuals, that journey continued across the Atlantic. The physical presence of so many major avant-garde artists in New York was a contributory factor in the emergence of an indigenous American artistic avant-garde. To say that this new avant-garde transcended European precedent is not, of course, to say that it did not depart from European examples. It is, however, to say that something significantly new and un-European was made of them. Some aspects of the European constellation were built upon, while others were discarded. For reasons which were undoubtedly connected to the wider exercise of American power, American artists seemed to have been emboldened to take what they needed in order to make an adequately modern art, which they felt appropriate to their own conditions. And yet, as the American experience itself became quintessentially modern, the art that resulted had few of the trappings of the narrowly national and was able to aspire, both with some success and some legitimacy, to international standing. The relations of the provincial and the cosmopolitan are clearly fraught, and their resolution will be bound up with social and political priorities, not least in respect of the implication of the aesthetic in the social. Be that as it may, such a perception seems to have animated the ambition of the artists themselves. From the perspective of the Americans, the least useful aspect of the European avant-garde seems to have been its commitment to utopian rationalism. Americans appear to have had little time for that European idealism, which had proved so singularly inadequate to the challenge of fascism, or for the geometric abstraction in which rationalism characteristically issued. They remained interested in the cubism from which that art was technically descended, but principally, it seems, as a constraint which needed to be loosened. The problem of how to achieve this was more than a simple technical matter. Insofar as painting had a form of philosophical credibility, it was largely secured by cubism. In the prevailing conditions, the upshot was that once again expressionism beckoned. The impulse to expression seems to have been muted or even conventionalized in the European avant-garde, at least since the defeat of the German Revolution. It subsided, as it were, into the middle ground of the modern movement, 
While the leading edge of avant-garde practice was formed by abstraction on one hand, and on the other by the surrealist preoccupation with the automatic transcription of the unconscious. Yet, as the events of history had once again become so overwhelming, and the force of state control so total, due to the prosecution of the war in the democracies as well as in the dictatorships, avant-garde artists appear once again to have been thrust back into themselves. At its most basic, this internal exile was a way of avoiding subservience to, and of maintaining some independence from, the dominant culture. An additional factor here was that the avenue of collective redress, that is to say the socialist tradition, was also widely identified as a form of closure, both in its major political and artistic forms, respect respectively so Soviet communism and socialist realism. It appeared that skeptical artists had few places left to go. On their own testimony, they were driven into themselves. On this trek out of an unbearable history, the artist's companion was myth. In fact, the inner and the mythical were made to coincide as expressive resources with which to face a modern world otherwise beyond description. As they had to a previous generation overwhelmed by the force of the modern world, the archaic and the unconscious offered themselves as lifeboats for the avant-garde. Within the European tradition, surrealism furnished the principle of reference for both. Breton had articulated Freud's theories of dreams and the unconscious to Marx's program of collective social emancipation. American artists seem to have been less concerned to change history than to survive it. Perhaps for this reason, it was Jung's theory of the unconscious, with its emphasis on the primitive and on shared archetypes deeply embedded in the human psyche, that proved most congenial to Pollock and other artists. In their drive towards this supposed bedrock of experience, American artists forced through an emphatic conjunction between expression and abstraction. Abstraction was definitely prized apart from its association with a dubious social utopianism and rendered newly vigorous through its connection to a robust and hard-won sense of self. Art, as Clifford Still put it, became an unqualified act. Without exception, these American artists who attempted to articulate their project at this time spoke of myth and transcendence, the roots of art in the unconscious, and of art itself as a solitary act. In the same breath, they would characteristically speak of the hostility of the age and the traps of any sense of community and security. Something else they shared, something subsequently often overlooked in attacks upon American modernism, was a refusal of the journalistic distinction between representational and abstract art. For them, their archetypal, myth-based abstraction stood or fell according to its content. They saw their work as representative of a true response in an age so hostile as to disqualify conventional depiction. The work themselves were held to embody moods and emotion, and through the achievement of independence from traditional constraints of depiction, to have acceded to something very like human character. There is, of course, no small irony in the fact that the most 
adventurous art produced by artists living in the most technically sophisticated nation on earth should consist in a kind of homage to primitive people and a refusal of the operations of the conscious mind. Nonetheless, in Gottlieb's words, such work was the only valid response to the neurosis which is our reality. As such, it was not abstraction at all, but the realism of our time. The experience of neurosis in the face of the Holocaust and the atom bomb was not, of course, peculiar to Americans. In fact, whereas American artists had at least been physically protected from the effects of Nazism, Paris, hitherto the center of avant-garde culture, had been an occupied city. After the war, belief in human goodness was no doubt subject to at least as great a strain there was as in New York. Art in Paris accordingly shares many properties with the work of the new American avant-garde, particularly in respect of an informal expressive paint application and an evocation of the primitive. It is hard, however, to escape a sense that it remains more circumscribed by tradition than its transatlantic counterpart. Two main factors qualify the post-war European experience. First, the European left was strong, especially the Communist Party, its prestige enhanced by the leading role it had played in the resistance. There was no comparable pole of attraction in Cold War America. Second, whereas America was now rich, richer by far than in the Depression years of the 1930s, Europe was devastated. One result of this combination of circumstances was that whereas in America, individualism rapidly tended toward a form of depoliticization. In Europe, it remained part of a determinedly anti-bourgeois stance. The angst, which was for so long a feature of the European post-war condition, had less to breed on in the United States. The complex interface between this anti-bourgeois individualism on the one hand and communism on the other was largely absent in America the more so following the systematic delegitimization of the left during the McCarthy years. Before the war, sections of the emergent avant-garde had been informed by left-wing anti-Stalinism in its anarchist or Trotskyist form. As the Cold War was launched in the post-war world, it proved a small step from anti-Stalinism to a generalized anti-communism in which the distinct features of former positions were lost to view. No doubt, American avant-garde artists remained individually distanced from the dominant values of an increasingly consumer-oriented capitalism. That, in a way, was the point. Individualism was the ideology of that culture. In Europe, individualism retained a philosophical and political thrust, which rendered it still largely oppositional, to bourgeois values on the one side and no less to the dogma of socialist realism on the other, but also in addition to these, to the increasing pace of Americanization. The Marshall Plan brought more food, more than food, machines, and money to Europe. It also brought values. And while these proved enormously attractive in terms of popular culture, there was apprehension in the avant-garde, and particularly in left-wing circles, over what was perceived as the 
Philistinism and Conformity of American Life. Jean-Paul Sartre made an ambitious attempt to open a dialogue between existentialism, predicated upon the individual exercise of free will and the communist party ideology of humanism. Yet for all his efforts, the communist's somewhat manufactured optimism stood in stark contrast to a mood of uncertainty and despair. The characteristic avant-garde emphasis upon the primitive, the direct, and the unschooled was given sharp focus in the French situation by Du Buffet's Art Brut. This was initially a form of celebration of the vitality and truth to be found in graffiti, in the art of children and of the insane. In turn, Du Buffet and others pursued this vitality and authenticity in their own art. The implication of this work was that the human and the civilized were at opposite poles, a conclusion which must have seemed to be supported by the experience of the war. The legacy of surrealism retained in Europe a diversity not so apparent in America. Antonin Artaud mingled his surrealist origins with the signs of his own instability in a form of single-handed resistance to a world perceived as insane. The psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan mediated the Freudian theory of the unconscious through his pre-war involvement with the Surrealist group to produce an account of the development of the human individual, which considerably privileged the act of looking. Few ideas have proved more fruitful for later representations of human subjectivity than his mirror phase. The political aspect of Surrealism survived in the group Cobra, not least as a form of left-wing resistance to orthodox communism and to its rigid doctrine of realism in the arts. Whatever happened in the United States, much European art still remained provincial with respect to France. In some places, the mood of isolation and loss persisted well after the overcoming of those socioeconomic conditions which had initially fueled it. Post-war angst, it seems, was capable of hardening into a rhetoric of the human condition per se. Whereas for Sartre, existentialism led to the left. For many others, the prospect of a left dominated by Soviet communism led to the rejection of all explicitly political alignment. For Europeans, as for American abstract expressionists, however, such resolute individualism proved susceptible to manipulation by Cold War strategists. Individualism was made to signify more powerfully as a pawn in the ideological struggle with totalitarianism than in terms of the freedom of the individual within the emergent post-war commodity capitalisms of the West. As a result, much of its liber libertarian force was weakened, and the organized left remained suspicious of many of the forms taken by avant-garde art. In brief, individualism was a social ideology. This is not to say that certain freedoms were not real, but at the same time, whose freedom and in what it was held to consist, let alone where its limits lay, were questions which the broader ideological conflicts of the time often simply subsumed. Predictably, the practice of art provided a sphere where these alternatives could clash. Equally predictably, these clashes were for the most part conducted from behind the ramparts of ideological certitude. 
The division of the world into two competing superpower blocks produced a mutually hostile political rhetoric between the two leaderships. It was a telling irony that they shared the same conservative tastes in art. In the debate about the social place of art, the possibility of complexity lay elsewhere. The center ground was appropriated by liberal democracy, on the one side distinct from conservatism, on the other from a conveniently oversimplified totalitarianism. Liberalism set the characteristic tone. More tensioned positions were possible, however. As remarked above, there remained islands of the anti-Stalinist left, a position which was not entirely snuffed out even in America. In somewhat more orthodox but ultimately no more secure vein, both Picasso and Leger joined the ranks of the French Communist Party. There were no more authoritative figures in the avant-garde tradition, but from the point of view of the party, their work remained a scandalous deviation from the realism, which it was, which it was held to be the business of communists to propagate. Conversely, David Sequeiros used his prestige to warn Soviet artists of the ossification of socialist realism, the prestige of a communist artist of long standing who had even been implicated in an assassination attempt upon Trotsky. One of the most powerful criticisms of modernism in the arts was made by the philosopher critic Georges Lucas. He also steered a course away from dogmatic socialist realism in an argument tellingly framed at the moment when Hungary attempted to break from Russian domination. Artistic debate was many-sided in the decade or so after the end of the Second World War. Among those who encountered the new American art in Europe in the 1950s, few doubted that it had established the paradigm for ambitious work in the immediate future. On the other hand, its aesthetic prominence appeared to have been bought at a high cost, the cost of abandoning many of the commitments which had made the European avant-garde a powerful social force, since its inception in the 19th century. Many have lamented that the European and av American avant-gardes, which they see as far from distinct, technically or philosophically, were not brought into dialogue so that the more complex political radicalism of the former might have come to fertilize the latter. The challenging, even disturbing possibility, however, is that it was its very refusal to become embroiled in the morass of post-war European debate that enabled American art to achieve what it did and to achieve it as art.